Hi, good afternoon. This is Greg Lois, and if you're here today, it's you're here to learn about medical benefit treatment guidelines in New York. Uh, today, the title of this is Medical Benefits and the Medical Benefit Guidelines, but really, we're going to talk about a lot about the non-acute pain management guidelines because that's what's interesting. I'm joined today, sitting to my right, your left, Declan Gorley, uh, and also uh, Jeremy Janis. Uh, again, to my far right, your uh, far left. Uh, these are both team members, uh, trial attorneys here at Lois LLC, and who are dealing with medical treatment guidelines issues all the time. Uh, at the end of today's webinar, I hope that you'll be able to answer questions from your location, your insurers, your clients, uh, the basic questions that you're going to be getting all the time. Hey, do we get to choose the doctor that our claimant is going to? Can we communicate with that doctor? What are the medical treatment guidelines? What do these things mean? And how do we get people off of our narcotics and opiates? Uh, I hope you're joining us today because uh, you're a part of our overall webinar series. This is something we do every month for New York workers' compensation. Uh, we also do a lot of other uh, things for the workers' comp community in New York. Uh, we have handbooks. Uh, we do a lot of articles on our website. Last month we did 11 different articles on all different topics in New York workers' compensation. And of course we have a newsletter. I'm also uh, very happy to report that the next year's edition, the 2017 edition of our uh, handbook, is at the publishers, and we do expect to get that back shortly and start mailing it out to clients. That's the 2017 edition of our handbook. All right, uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, uh, Jeremy and Declan, and we're going to talk to you about the medical treatment guidelines today. We're going to talk about the medical treatment guidelines, medical benefits under the New York Workers' Compensation Law. We're going to talk about how we control those benefits, and we're going to talk about the hot topic, which is really addiction and opiate abuse. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you guys to talk about the general benefits allowed under workers' compensation law. So under workers' compensation law, there are four primary benefits to injured workers. Uh, first, which we're mainly going to talk about today, is the medical benefits. And in New York, uh, claimants can choose the doctor that they go to and treat, and the carrier is responsible for any cause-related medical treatment. Uh, the second thing that we're going to, uh, the second benefit to workers is temporary disability benefits. So we talked about that last month. We had a presentation. If you missed it, you can go back to our website and look through the archives and archives and find that. Uh, but uh, temporary disability benefits basically allows for any cause-related lost time um, claimants can get indemnity benefits. The third thing, the third type of indemnity benefit is uh, permanency benefits. And basically at the end of the case, uh, the claimant can either be classified with a loss of wagering capacity or a scheduled loss of use award. And the fourth type of benefit are death benefits. So today we're going to cover the medical treatment guidelines. The medical treatment guidelines provide a pathway to bring the claimant back to health so they can return to work. The medical treatment guidelines cover six areas, the neck, the mid-low back, the shoulder, the knee, carpal tunnel syndrome, and non-acute pain, and they let the doctor know what treatments are authorized, what treatments are pre-authorized, and what treatments re uh, require a variance. Today, we're going to focus on the non-acute pain guidelines. So if you haven't had a chance yet, I recommend going to the New York Workers' Compensation Board website uh, where you can find all the medical treatment guidelines that Jeremy just mentioned. Um, on there, you can also go through, and there's training courses. Uh, they range from, I believe, an hour to, to 90 minutes total. Um, they're really in-depth, and they'll give you a better understanding of what actually uh, the medical treatment guidelines uh, dictate and what they regulate. Uh, we're not going to go through everything today, obviously. This is uh, a fairly brief overview, but if you want to get a better understanding, I certainly recommend uh, going to the website and taking a look through those courses and the actual guidelines themselves. If you take the time to go through the course, uh, you will get a certification with your name on it. As and I was very proud to put my diploma uh, <laughs> in today's presentation. 
So if you want your own personal diploma, feel free to go on there and complete it. And uh, if you get a good enough score, you'll get that little printout. <laughs> yeah, and uh, let me just say one thing before we move on from this slide. Uh, generally speaking, I recommend highly taking the medical treatment guideline training to our clients. I have, you know, when people have asked me, hey, could you come in and do a presentation on the guidelines? I say, well, have you guys done the training? Because generally speaking, I think this is some of the best training that the board has actually provided. It's totally free. As when you take the training, it sort of walks you through each one of the guidelines. It even gives you the references. There's little quizzes, and then you do get those little diplomas as you work through it. I, I recommend all of my clients take the medical treatment guidelines. All the attorneys here take it. Um, and I think it's a very good way of getting sort of familiar with sort of those general guidelines. Uh, so we're not going to spend a lot of time today talking about the general guidelines. We're going to talk a little bit about variances and authorizations. I'm going to ask you guys to talk about that. But the nuts and bolts of what's actually pre-authorized, what isn't, and those sort of general treatment pathways, don't think it's worth spending a lot of time on. I would definitely recommend you take that training that's available for free. All right, so let's move right into variances and and C4 authorizations or authorization requests, and please tell us, tell everybody who's listening when uh, somebody would need one of those. Okay, so right now we're gonna get into variance requests. Um, variance requests are required when a treating physician recommends a treatment for the uh, claimant that is not within the medical guideline, treatment guidelines or outside of the medical treatment guidelines. The treating physician will go, uh, will do this by filing a variance request with the board Within five days, the carrier must let the board know whether they wish to seek either an IME or a peer review to uh, review the variance request. The peer review report or the IME must be submitted within 30 days of that request. And with once they submit the denial, there's a few grounds for denial. Failure to meet the burden of proof, no causal relation, or we're not a quasi-related site. Right. I mean, how many times do we see uh, treatment requests for a body part that hasn't been established into the case? I mean, such a basic and obvious reason for us to be denying that variance. We're always looking for reasons, basically, to deny variances. I mean, this is treatment that goes, by its very definition, above and beyond what's allowed in the medical treatment guidelines. Uh, and before we move on to authorizations, uh, let's just stress that these have to be on a very specific form that has been provided by the... Uh, workers' Compensation Board. In fact, the regulation says it has to be on the specific form, and it has to be completely filled out. So many times we see variances which are just straight defective. The paperwork hasn't been completed uh, correctly by the doctor's office. They have some clerk filling these things out, and they're just you know incorrectly done. So uh, it's definitely worth it to spend the time to look at the actual variance request and consider opportunities to deny it. So there are two types of variance requests that a doctor can issue. There's either the uh, MG2s, which Jeremy just talked about, or there's the C4 auths. Um, the procedural is pretty much the same for both of them. Um, depending on the type of treatment or the body part being requested, that dictates which of the two forms the doctor is supposed to use. Um, whenever you, the carrier files a denial of the C4 auth on the C4 auth D, um, the denial must be filed within five days, and you're also required to file a C81A at the same time. Um, there's various reasons for denying, as Jeremy discussed. Mainly, um, if there's no, they haven't met the burden of proof, they haven't showed previous uh, improvement based on, for instance, if they're requesting additional physical therapy and there was no documentation that the physical therapy the first 25 times worked. Right. Why are we rec recommending it or requesting it again? Right. Um, 
And particularly with physical therapy, I mean, that's the one where we see, you know, you've had 40 sessions. What, what is the 50th session going to make you any better? And the answer is it isn't. Um, <laughs> let's also be cautious. Uh, physical therapists can't file C4 authorizations. They can only be fired by, filed by a physician. So if you see them coming in from chiropractors and physical therapists, that's absolutely inappropriate. The denial reasons are similar to those for the variants. Not a causal related body part. It's a denied case, uh, et cetera. Um, certainly recommend filing or responding timely because what happens is if we don't respond timely, the board will issue an order to the chair, pretty much automatically granting whatever's been requested. Um, if you're requesting it for a reason other than um, basically not a cause related body part or they haven't met the burden of proof, we certainly recommend getting either an IME or a peer review um, because oftentimes we have to go to a hearing and if we don't have any medical rationale to back up why we're denying it, the treatment's going to be authorized. All right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about out-of-state treatment. We've seen this all the time. In fact, uh, even today, a case came in on out-of-state treatment. Yeah, well, our primary resi residents that aren't living in New York are New Jersey residents. We live so close to New York, New Jersey. And in fact, we're in New Jersey today. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. So oftentimes, claimant works New Jersey, travels to New York to work. They're not required to treat in New York State. And if they have a medical provider in New Jersey, the New Jersey medical provider is not required to uh, meet the medical treatment guidelines. So you shouldn't be denying treatment because it's exceeded the guidelines because under the, under the board rules, they're not required to uh, adhere to the New York medical treatment guidelines if they're receiving treatment out of state. Yeah, and some part of that makes sense to me. Uh, when you do have uh, an employee who resides in New Jersey but works in New York, we do want them to be able to treat close to home. Of course, some of the physicians are absolutely abusing this. Uh, they have offices in both states. It's very common. They get the patient in New York, and they say, hey, how about let's do the treatment over in my New Jersey office, and they're doing that on purpose because New Jersey does not have a fee schedule. New York does. Uh, so New York, all medical treatment is subject to the fee schedule. It absolutely is not in New Jersey. And then what they'll do is they'll turn around in New Jersey, which has a user, usual and customary fee schedule. They'll turn around and they'll file a medical application, a medical provider application, seeking uh, the, the difference between what they would have gotten under the fee and schedule in New York and what they've gotten in, in New Jersey. Uh, we've been very successful in this office at defending those and challenging those. So if you're seeing a lot of that or you have a problem where there are medical provider applications filed in New Jersey uh, for treatment that arises out of a New York workers' compensation case, uh, come talk to us because uh, you can absolutely challenge those and you can win those. You should be getting dismissals uh, because the New York fee schedule should apply. All right, so that's a little bit about out-of-state treatment. Let's talk about uh, the big elephant in the room and the big problem and the big challenge, which is acute pain and not acute pain, excuse me. Uh, oh, wait, before we do that, my bad. <laughs> we're supposed to talk about maximum medical improvement and the definition. Hey, maximum medical improvement is a finding of me uh, is uh, based on the medical judgment that the claimant has recovered from the work-related injury to the greatest extent that is expected, and no further improvements in his or her condition is reasonably expected. Right, and we're litigating this all the time, right? We're litigating that there is no further curative care. Uh, this is the original definition of maximum medical improvement, and it didn't really help us. The board changed the definition in 2013, so let's talk about that. So basically what we were doing is we were getting IMEs, we were going to hearings, we were pushing for a permanency finding, and claimants were, or their treating doctor was saying, the case is not right for MMI, claimants considering surgery. They may have surgery. Yeah. So in 2013, the board responded to this by issuing a board bulletin basically modifying the definition for MMI and indicating that if there's a possibility for surgery, you can't just say there's a mere possibility in the near future or 
sometime down the road, anytime, who knows when, this claimant may have surgery, therefore we can't give an MMI determination at this time. So basically the board has indicated that um, unless there's a, a scheduled surgery date or there's a pre-authorization for surgery in the board file, they're not going to put off uh, finding MMI, and it's not an excuse for them to not give a, a permanency finding at that time. All right, now we're on non-acute pain. My bad. <laughs> Here we go. All right, so now we're going to address non-acute pain and the opioid use. Um, there's two pathways for opioid users. Um, the first are opioid-naive users, or people who have not used opioids in the past. And the second is patients who are currently on opioid medications, and they're dealt with in two totally separate ways. So the opioid-naive users are those that were, at the time of the, uh, November 2014, when they implemented these new non-acute pain medication guidelines, um, people that were not already on the, uh, not already on opiates. And basically, in order to be placed on opiates, you have to prove that you've failed all other conservative measures. So you've tried physical therapy, you've tried non-opioid medications, and those medications have failed and you continue to have pain. Um, in order to have, be prescribed an opioid medication, um, claimants are required to be placed on some type of opioid trial. So a 30 to 60 day trial um, showing that the claimant has some, sustained some type of functional improvement or that their pain levels have improved. And this 30-day trial must be, or 30 to 60-day trial must be completed prior to a new prescription for an opioid medication being issued by the doctor. So, a successful therapeutic opioid trial, the claimant will have improved function, including a return to work or increase in activities of daily life, at least a 30% reduction in pain measured by a valid pain scale, no significant adverse side effects, and no aberrant drug-related behaviors. Right. So. Theoretically, they shouldn't be 9 out of 10 pain after they've been doing this opiate trial. It should, we should see that pain scale score go down. Uh, I mean, that's one thing that I, I find very frustrating. Before opiates, you were 9 out of 10 or 8 out of 10. Of course, self-reporting and quite subjective. You've been on it now for a year, and you're still 8 or, eight mm -hmm. or 9 out of 10. So I clearly did nothing. But in the past, the board has been uh, sort of, uh, the judges have been, just approving more and more opiates where they clearly haven't shown any improvement. All right, let's talk about people who were already on opiates for maybe an old injury uh, before the guidelines were adopted. So one of the questions we get is, um, if I've got someone that's already on opiates, can if they don't meet the non-acute pain medication guidelines, can I just suspend their opiates and not pay for the medication? And the, the board has actually addressed this and has point blank said that this does not apply, you cannot just suspend, they're worried about the issues that claimants will have if they're Jumping just facing the whole turkey. Yeah, right. they, I mean, we think these people will throw themselves off skyscrapers. They're very addicted. Right. So the board has actually said that sometime in the future we're going to address this with new guidelines, but as of yet, and we don't know when, um, they're going to address this issue. Right. And just to be clear, from the adoption of the reform resolution in regulations in 2007, to the time they actually issued the first medical treatment guidelines, it took five years, and the disability—I'm uh, sorry—the guidelines about non-opiate or opiate use took seven years. So I'm not holding my breath, waiting for them to sort of address these long-term opiate users. For existing opioid users, they recommend that the lowest possible dose be used, and that a maximum of two different opioids be used—one for a long-acting opioid for the maintenance of pain and a second for short-acting opioid for rescue use. Um, you cannot use opioids that are delivered by way of the mouth or the nose. And if two or more opioids are being considered for long-term use, a second opinion should be 
sought from a board-certified specialist in addiction medicine or pain medicine. Right, because how many times have we seen long-term narcotic users who are taking three or four different medications, uh, they're being delivered dermally, they're being delivered uh, orally, they're being delivered via pills, all of this at the same time. I mean, they're pharmaceutically disabled based on just how much opium, opiate derivatives they have in their body. Um, all right, and there's also some mandatory testing. Right, so under the new law, um, employers and insurance carriers can require claimants who are, and doc, treating doctors can require claimants who are being prescribed these opiates to take mandatory uh, testing, urine testing. Um, the claimant may reject it and may refuse to take it, but if they do so, then the treating doctor is not supposed to prescribe the medication. Um, under the law, these results are not supposed to be supplied to the insurance carrier and the employers. If somehow that is provided to the board and we get our hands on that, we are not allowed to use that documentation, that, that testing, to, to in any way affect the claimant's employment. So we can't suspend them, terminate them, fire them for what the results of their uh, urine, urine testing. And with respect to the MNT, um, as you, I'm sure you get these all the time, MNT is medical and transportation reimbursement requests by claimants. They're required to submit this on a specific form, a C257, um, and this form is specifically meant for uh, expenses out of the claimant's pocket, whether they've traveled uh, mileage reimbursement to uh, IMEs and to medical examinations of their own treating doctor, or if there's some type of medically necessary uh, fee that they've been charged. So if their doctor says they need a special chair and a shower, as long as they have medical documentation that says it's medically necessary, those expenses are reimbursable. Things that are not reimbursable are, um, rather than taking public transportation, they're getting, they're asking their friends to take them in there and charging them for a taxi cost. Um, if they're seeking reimbursement, it must be either by public transportation or uh, a taxi fare. Right, and we've seen Ubers, we've <laughs> seen limos, we've seen M&Ts for first class travel, we've seen M&Ts for fancy beds, uh, we've seen M&Ts for lots of things that really are not covered at all. So just be wary about uh, the M&T requests that come in. Absolutely audit them uh, and limit what's being paid. All right, uh, that's it for today. Uh, unfortunately, this is not live. Uh, due to our schedules, we couldn't all be in the same place at the same time. Uh, please feel free to email Declan or Jeremy. Their contact information is up on the screen right now, and they'll get right back to you with any questions you have about medical treatment guidelines, narcotics, etc. Uh, if you're wondering about this webinar series or what are the upcoming topics, take a look at our website. They're all listed under events. Next month, we'll be talking about defending occupational exposure claims, and that would be asbestosis claims, respiratory claims, tinnitus claims, any types of uh, repetitive orthopedics. Uh, Declan and Thomas Park will be presenting on that topic. Thanks for joining us once again. Uh, glad to be of service. Please uh, reach out to us with any questions you have uh, regarding today's topic or really any topic. Uh, see you in a month. Bye.